Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. Hello, Nate. What's up, Dan? How are you, brother? Let me try this other light on. Sorry. Kind of figured out in here. It's all gloomy in LA. Look like I'm in the dark. I'm in a cave. You're good. You look good, right? He looks good, Mike. Yep. Okay. I mean, just cool. in general or right now? Well, just in general, he looks good. <laughs> yeah, he just general, like, he's got it. It's, it's really nice. Nate's to, had it cooking for a while. It's and nice I think he knows to he's gaze cooking with gas. Him. Yeah, I, it's nice to just look at him. All right. Well, we can do that for 20, 30 minutes. Yeah, let's <laughs> just stare at each other. Tell you like that is that is a very winning proposition for me right now from where I'm sitting. So <laughs> less less of a winning we proposition. We want to make that the interview, him. Nate. I'm sorry. Less, like it's, it's not gonna be a great for auditory yes, experience, right. but not what it's about, is it? But I'm giving this podcast five stars right now. <laughs> I've just it's, subscribed for it's more. It's smoldering. Yep. It it should it should have a uh, not suitable for work message on it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It is a very well fitting t shirt. All of your Thanks. t-shirts fit that way, yeah. correct? You don't have any. What do you do for chest exercises? You do, you <laughs> you do, the, you, do you do that one where it goes in? And how long I do you don't hold? do that one. How long I do don't do that one. You don't? I don't think anybody does that one anymore. <laughs> really? I've been wasting my time? Yeah. Now, wait, wait a minute. You just bench? Mike, you you're just doing two pads that come from uh, from the elbows yeah, at your side. I'm with Nate. I don't think the they I think they stopped doing that for the pecs in the gym a I, long time probably, ago. I thought you did that to get the separation. And, and I'm also Definition. assuming that Nate just does a thousand push-ups. He just gets up in the morning That's and it. does a thousand you, really? push-ups. Really? You do push-ups? Because I was hurting my shoulder. I don't do a thousand push-ups. You know what? I think it was... Wasn't that Herschel Walker used to do like sit ups? Like, yeah, four hundred sit ups, four hundred push ups, and that'd be the workout to like wake up. Yeah, but that's all he did. Like he never like touched a weight, in all oh, body weight. Just a little bit of genetics, just a little bit. Just a little know? bit. But it was mostly the push ups. All right, cool. I'll get out of your hair. But what do you do for your chest? Yes, well, I <laughs> think it, I think it's a Spartan. I'm gonna think it's a Spartan workout. I'm you, going. You to, also got the shoulders too. You don't ignore them, and that's a, like that's actually the key to have a very defined I, upper body. I believe that Nate can do the whole prison workout. That it's just uh, that with just his body, Nate can do a perfect. Is this pull ups? I'm pull uping. Really. I do it all. Really? But a lot of body weight stuff. He's not wrong. That's Pilates? It's the best. Pilates? It's the best. You want uh, Pilates? No, I don't do Pilates. No. no. I'm actually going to do yoga with my girlfriend on Wednesday, and I'm terrified. Nice. But, Are you flexible? Yeah. Oh, it sounds, really. it sounds like neither. he's inflexible. Yeah. Don't, yeah. Eat, don't eat before. Do not <laughs> eat before. No, I'm telling you. It's like a, you have to treat it like a massage because they're used to it, and they're pretty cool about it if you let one slide, but... It's going to be in your head, right? I've been in, I've, I've done it before. I've been in a room where somebody did, you know, I think the instructor was saying like, you know, talking about relaxation and someone, someone was a little too relaxed, I guess, because it was just, I I go in there, my butthole is so tight. I just can't, I can't fully relax. That's not the way to do yoga, Mike. I I understand it's counterintuitive, but look, I got a stomach thing because I like to do that thing where I eat things, even though I know it's bad for my body. So I think a lot of people have that. Yeah. I'm not going to stop doing it. It's just. It is what it is. I'll, I, and I'll do that and I'll complain about how bad my stomach feels. And then someone says, well, stop drinking beer. I'll be like, screw you. Don't judge me. But yeah. at the same time, parts are going to happen that way when you treat your body like that. <laughs> so I avoid yoga for that reason and the fact that I'm not flexible at all. I hate stretching. And I also don't like running. Do you run? I don't like running. I do run. I ran my first marathon last year, actually. Really? What is the yeah. point of running if you're not being chased? 
I don't know, shoulders, chest. You that's how I get it by um, running. I guess lean out, lean out. Do you find it? It does make you feel better. It so does make you feel afterwards, not during. It's become very clear to me that you look the way that you do because you put the work in. How do I look the way that you do without doing it's any a new of the work? concepts? But you got to actually work. No, for results. No, they have these things. I saw this thing on a like a on <laughs> no, no, no. a TLC show where if I wanted calves, they just slide in some silicone. Like right there. Oh, yeah, you can do that. I'm sure you can do that. Do it. You should do it. I mean, that technology's come a far away. All right, I think I'm with that. I'll, I'll just go set up an appointment, a con- consultation, because like he looks good. I want to look like that, but I definitely don't want to run or pull up. Yeah, or marathon sounds like a lot of work. So we will keep all of that in and we will get with the hard stuff in the interview here because we were, talk- <laughs> we were talking about the hard stuff. Look at that. I can bounce a quarter off of that and it'll shoot right back into my yes, eye. Yes. Uh, we have made him deeply uncomfortable just staring at him, but I wanted to have Nate on because I feel uh, not that he was disguised last time we talked, but I didn't feel like I got at uh, his real opinions on things because he was being a good soldier, good patriot. And there's there's uh, there's a certain proper way of being according to how you've been instructed and taught. And so you've gotten very good at talking publicly, but you also are careful in a way that I think uh, makes it hard to read what's going on. So before we go into some of the stuff that we talked about last time, I was hoping to talk to you about your training because it's something that I didn't talk to you about last time what you go through the hardest parts of training for the job that you had uh, how would you describe them to a layman because you guys basically torture yourselves correct <laughs> i mean i wouldn't call it torturing yourself but you definitely uh, you put a lot of miles on your body that's the best way to describe it i mean one of the things we do at our at the simplest form is you got very you know heavy rucksacks we're we're toting around on our backs and we're finding grid coordinates basically we're, we're land navving out in the middle of the sticks, you know, that's a big part of the special forces training. You're out on your own and you got to figure it out. Usually you have a lack of food and sleep and uh, assistance. You got a map and a compass and, you know, you got to traverse uh, parts of the Appalachians, for instance, depending on what kind of uh, special operations unit you're in. And, uh, and you got to figure it out on your own. And there's a time limit. You don't know what the time limit is. So, of course, you're going to go as fast as you possibly can. And, uh, you know, and that's, I mean, that's just one piece of it. There's also SEER school, which is a big part of that, where, you know, stands for survival, evasion, resistance, and escape. And it's basically a, like a POW camp, a mock POW camp that you go through, but it doesn't feel fake when you're doing it because you've been out doing survival training for a week and barely eaten. And then, you know, you get rolled up and put in this camp and you got to like answer questions to kind of get through it, but you also have to answer them very delicately and carefully and, you know, make sure you're protecting uh, your brothers first and foremost. So maybe that's a little bit of where the, uh, the, the, the question answering comes from. Well, I, I was, was going to say, well, no wonder I was against a master. So I'm sitting here <laughs> trying to ask interview questions that are probing and I'm doing so with a guy who's used to POW type of interview <laughs> training to never say anything, to don't, don't actually reveal yourself because the consequences might be death. I actually wanted to talk to you because you served, uh, you, it was, is it six tours of duty? Well, I, I went overseas six times, but I went, three of them were combat deployments. So I really would only say three. I went to Iraq once and Afghanistan twice. 
Let's talk about the training, though, because you said okay. it's not torture, and then you described something that sounded to me like torture. <laughs> so uh, go ahead and just tell me what your, in your view, what was the worst of it, or what was the hardest part? Because you're you're flippantly throwing out there, well, not eating for a week and starving yourself, and your and not sleeping, and your mental faculties are all screwed up, and also do this very hard thing. Yeah, I mean, I guess that's. I mean, I, when I think of torture. I don't know. I guess I think of extreme uh, circumstances. So it's not like somebody's, you know, I, I'm not hooked up to any kind of a electric chair or anything like that. You know, I'm not being waterboarded, but I mean, you are being, you are being uh, definitely questioned in a very specific manner. <laughs> and, and uh, you know, you're, you're, you're beat around, whether you're beating yourself up a little bit or you're getting beat up a little bit to earn that green beret, or, you know, if you're a seal to earn, uh, your trident or whatever that is in the special operations world, they got to know that you can, you can handle it. You can take it. You can withstand some stuff. And it's not just from a, you know, a torture perspective from someone else, but it's like, you know, if you're on a mission for 72 hours and you got to stay awake that whole time and be alert, you know, and not get complacent, they got to know that you're going to, you're going to be able to handle it. And so that's, that's where that comes from. I mean, that's, uh, that's, that's why it's so difficult. And it's, it's a war of attrition. You, you line up, hundred guys at the beginning of a course like that. And you could hand pick which 10 you think are going to make it. And it's usually not those 10. It's not necessarily the way that you, you, you look or sort of carry yourself there. It's the way that you look, you know, a year later, <laughs> months later down the line when, when it's just, you know, a suck fest for basically an entire year and a half. Well, what did you regard as the most challenging parts of training? Um, I think the most challenging parts of training for me, the leadership part for me, because you're pretty young when you're going through this stuff. You know, most people going through a special forces training is in their probably their their mid to late twenties, I'd say on average. And I played sports growing up. I played I played almost every sport, but it's different when you're called upon as like a sort of you know the captain or the team leader to make decisions that affect the rest of the group. You don't want to make the wrong choice. I'm bad at picking at the grocery store. You know what I mean? So like when it comes to something like that with a lot higher stakes. That was the biggest challenge for me, especially when you've got that mental fatigue and all that. And, and you're like, you're second guessing everything, every decision that you're making. So say you're, you're out in small unit tactics training where it's like 12, 12 man teams and you're going through Vietnam era simulations out there in the sticks and you're up for days on end. And of course, you know, in your heart of hearts, like you got water, you got food if you need it. There's medical staff on hand, if something happens, there's not real bullets being fired at you. But at the same time, like you really want to succeed. You don't want to lay anybody down and you want to, you know, you want to make it through the training. So all that pressure kind of gets to you. And then you got to make a, you know, a, a vital decision to go left or right, for instance. And uh, there's reasons why both look good. And, and you got to figure out which one is the best in that scenario in, in a short period of time. And just those kind of things, that was the hardest stuff for me. I mean, I think putting one leg in front of the other and just continuing to go, even though you're in a lot of physical pain, just like running a marathon, that's not the hard part to me. It's, you know, it's, it's what's going on between the ears is, is what gets you. Did you surprise yourself that that was something that was residing within you? Like my guess is you fancied yourself a leader, right? You fancied, well, I'm not going to be a follower. I'm going to be someone who know who's going to be decisive. Or is it something that you learned with those challenges? Yeah, I, I guess I didn't know until I was in the situation how hard that would be. You know what I mean? I mean, I think when you're not in a major leadership role, 
And you've got to make a lot of these decisions that are very nuanced until you're sitting in that seat. You know, it's hard to imagine what that's actually like. You'd like to think everybody likes to think that they're capable and that they, they, they could handle it. And that, well, maybe not everybody, but most people, I think, feel like, you know, whether it's parenting or whatever, like I could do this if I needed to. And then you're there and it's a different situation when, you know, when your boots on the ground and it's like you're in that moment and you realize that it's not only your health and well-being, maybe that's at stake, it's others. That's when it became challenging for me because I think they instill in you early on in the military that it's all about the man on, man or woman on your left and right. It's all about people around you. Like that's the most important thing. And it's not wrong. It's not wrong to, you know, for what we're uh, trying to accomplish. And it takes away the self-preservation aspect of it. But then it becomes more daunting because it's like, well, I'm not just worrying about myself. I'm, my decisions affect other people uh, in a big way. And, and that, uh, yeah, that that's it's just something you don't really, I don't know, you don't really picture. You, you you fancy yourself to be a leader or a warrior of some type from that you watch in a movie where they you don't see them having to go through this part of it. You know what I mean? You just see them doing the William Wallace riding his horse in front of a group and rallying the troops and like, oh, that's awesome, you know, but there's just a lot more to it. I'm just stunned by your answer because I'm guessing, maybe I've got this wrong. I'm applying my sensibilities, obviously. That wouldn't strike me as the most arduous parts of this, but you're basically saying the physical wasn't a problem for me, even though it knocked out 90 out of 100 people <laughs> training for it. It's absolutely the test of your mental strength. And you're not even talking about the endurance of pain. You're talking about just making sure you're doing the right thing for the group. You're talking about the burden of responsibility. Yeah. I mean, those other factors absolutely play a role, but maybe it was just through those the first, I really committed, when I went to basic training, I really dedicated myself to like doing extra when I could. Because when I got there, I was not in good shape. I hadn't really exercised except for playing some pickup basketball since high school. And I, would, I was out of high school for five years. So it was, I had a little bit of a gap there. And the first week in basic training, I was just getting destroyed from a physical aspect. You know, I like couldn't, my testing scores were very low as far as like, if I'm going to try to be a Green Beret, I better pick it up. And so I started to do a little bit extra, a little bit extra. And over those 14 weeks of basic training in infantry school, which most people pass, it's a little different than going through special forces training. I developed a lot of confidence though, because that's three and a half months, which is a good amount of time. And I think anybody that really commits on like a super high level to their physical fitness in three and a half months, you're going to see some pretty big results. If you really, I mean, I'm talking really commit and like the amount of time we're putting into it you know, in the military, it's hours a day. And, uh, and I did start to see that. I think I have, you know, I've got good endurance. I've always had good like lungs and stuff like that. So that helps. But once you start to, to build up those muscles and, and that, that muscular endurance and get that confidence, I think pretty quickly you realize what the body is capable of if it's operating at a high level and, and how it can just keep going, even when it feels like it's going to break down and quit, you know, whether it's, your feet feeling like every step forward is a, a, you know, a hammer pounding into your heels or whatever it is. Everybody's got their things, you know, knee issues or just straight muscle fatigue and, and cramping and all that stuff. Like it, you can work through it and, and it, it eventually becomes just a mental battle. You know, I mean, I guess maybe it's not the smartest thing to do long-term for your body. I don't know, but I'm 40 now and I'm, I, I feel good. I mean, I got, I got back pain and stuff like that, but I don't know anybody that's 40 that doesn't have back pain somewhere. And uh, so anyway, I, I, uh, I think that was the big thing, just those little victories through the early stages before I even went to special forces training that uh, built up that, that confidence in myself and, and, uh, and just 
the physical body understanding or at least believing that it can withstand anything. For the uninitiated, and I will leave this after this, but because I know Green Beret and Special Forces training, I think it's considered the most arduous of the trainings, correct? For just about anything. I don't even know what you'd put it up against in terms of how it challenges the body and the mind. If you had to explain to somebody else the physical challenge of this, the not eating, the not sleeping, the dealing with pain every step, no matter how good you you get at it, when did you doubt that you might not get to the end of this? Was there a moment, or when did you most doubt, or was that not even existent? I had doubt for sure. I, I think every day there's like a little bit of doubt from time to time. Well, I'm gonna say a little bit of doubt. Sometimes I just straight up wanted to quit. I, I think everybody goes through that and that fear, but I think it's so overwhelmed by the fear of quitting, like what you're going to think about yourself. And you know, like, what if you did? And then all of a sudden you turn the corner and there was that thing you were chasing. And it's just like, oh my God, I just threw it all the way on that. So I think that, that, that's why I guess that fear of regret just supersedes all, all the other, the fears and the doubting and the, you know, negative self-talk and the voice in your head. And you just get to this place where uh, you, you know, it's not real. I mean, it's just, it's, it's, uh, it's not you, that voice in your head, you're, you're listening to it. Sometimes you're having a conversation with it, but it's not real. And, uh, I think once you sort of harness that, I guess, whatever that is and understand that you're able to just keep going. And, um, and like I said, in a situation where it's with the team, there is team week, you know, when you go through special forces training and then when you're deployed, you're always with the team or at least one other person everywhere you're going when that person or that group is the most important thing, it just, it helps alleviate the pain. I think that one of the best ways to alleviate your own pain is to try to take away somebody else's. That's just a general good rule for life. And it, you know, it helps take your mind off your own struggles and your own problems, whether they're physical, mental, emotional, whatever they are. How did you become someone who would be interested in something like special forces? I went to the Darfur in 2004 and did some relief work over there. It was, uh, I was 23 years old and I felt like I'd wasted the last four or five years of my life in some ways. I mean, I, I worked all kinds of odd jobs on a fishing boat. I went to firefighting school for a bit and then dropped out of it because I wasn't sure if that's what I wanted to do. And I just was, I, I didn't go to college, you know, and, and not that you need to go to college to do anything uh, in this world. Like, especially nowadays, I feel like less and less it's necessary, but, uh, I just didn't feel like I mattered. I, nothing I did really made much of a difference. And I found, I picked up this Time Magazine article talking about what was going on in Sudan and specifically the Darfur and this genocide that was occurring. 300,000 people had already been been murdered, you know, and they were understaffed at these refugee camps and they were filling up across the border from Sudan into Chad. And I was just like, man, I'm, I'm just going to go help. I mean, these images from this Time Magazine were like speaking to me, like this is something I I knew very little about. I'd never traveled to a, to a developing country. I'd hardly traveled at all, really. And I don't know. I was kind of at, I felt like I was at somewhat of a breaking point in my life. And I just, uh, I just went, I just, I went to the AAA, used to buy plane tickets to the AAA. And I went to the AAA in Burbank and I bought a ticket to the Darfur and flew over there, landed in the capital, uh, which was far from where the refugee camps were and just kind of, figured it out, talked my way onto a, a UN flight, kind of told a few fibs to get out there because I wasn't with any organizations. I'd, I'd called Doctors Without Borders and Child Fund and Catholic Relief Services and all these organizations that were over there. And because I didn't have a college degree or any special skills and 
they were like, well, you know, we, you're not a doctor. You're not like this and that, you know, what would you do? And I was like, well, they're massively understaffed over there. Like I'm talking about just like blue collar work. I'll, I'll help build the campsites and assist in the, in the medical centers and dig ditches, like whatever you need, I'll do it. And they're like, well, that's great. And, and we understand that, but it's just not that simple. And I was just like, I, I, I got to see this for myself. So I just went over there. And once I got there, the people were so welcoming and like, first of all, there was not really any Americans over there because in that part of the country uh, or that part of the world, I should say, you know, they're speaking a lot of lo- local language languages. And then those were uh, a Chad specifically it was a, a French colony. So they spoke French. And once so many of these people had met an American, you know, I, I think a lot of them were just so enamored with America. I mean, from a pop culture perspective worldwide, you know, uh, they all had 50 cent albums and you know, American movies and all this stuff. And they'd never met an American person. And so just, just that was, you know, helped me sort of, I guess, earn, earn a place uh, to help out. And then I just stayed with the people. I mean, I slept on the ground with everybody else and every day, like literally what I was doing was what I thought I would be able to be doing, which was, you know, would, would help build the campsites. Like I literally played soccer with kids every single day and like would have help ration out the food and, make sure people got to medical appointments they needed to get to if they, you know, if they had uh, uh, illness. And I mean, it's pretty much all women and children and they're pretty malnourished. So there's just a lot more going on than, you know, the common cold or something like that. And uh, yeah, I mean, I was, I was utilized for, for a couple of months there and it just completely changed my life. I wanted to like fight for these people, you know, in some way. And, and the unique part of what the special forces do in the Green Berets is there's a big element of humanitarian and foreign internal defense, they call it, where when you deploy, you don't have not only like live with the people you're fighting alongside, but you train, train them and you, uh, you know, you end up fighting alongside them and, and uh, sort of becoming their brothers in arms as well. You let you live with those people. And when I found out about that from the special forces uh, aspect, that's what really got me thinking about the military. It wasn't necessarily, I just want to go to war, you know, I think I, I felt at home in that environment in a weird way, I think because I felt purposeful and, and useful and helpful in some, in some aspect. So I wanted, I did want to get back to the developing world and, and be able to continue to do some type of work over there. But also there was a part of me that, that really thought like someone needs to stand up for these people and whether that means with weapons or not, like that, that, that's something that I truly believe. And I still believe in some way, shape or form, especially that that's a responsibility I think we have as this country to, uh, you know, and as, as Americans to, to do something for people that just don't have what we have here from a freedoms aspect, from a comfortability aspect. And, uh, yeah, that's, that's something that I still feel very strongly about, but yeah, when I got home and I found out about day oppressor libera, which is, it means to free the oppressed. It's the special forces motto. It was just like exactly what made sense to me. And uh, there wasn't another unit that I really wanted to be a part of across the entire military. My team is one win away. And I'll tell you exactly what I'm going to do to celebrate once they get past this series. I'm going to go to my fridge and I'm going to get myself an ice cold can of Miller Lite. A lot's changed over the years, but one thing that hasn't, the great taste of Miller Lite. Another thing that hasn't changed is that it's less filling. So what is the best thing about the original light beer? Miller Lite sparked this debate in 1975, and it still hasn't been settled. You see, Miller Lite keeps it simple. Undebatable quality, great taste, and only 96 calories. It's the beer that strips away everything that you don't need and holds on to what matters most. 
A light beer that tastes like beer, less filling, and only 96 calories. The original light beer since 1975. You don't have to choose what's best. Miller Lite has great taste and is less filling. Tastes like Miller time. To get Miller Lite delivered right at your door, visit MillerLite.com beach, B-E-A-C-H. Or you can get it pretty much anywhere that sells beer. Celebrate responsibly. Miller Brewing Company, Milwaukee, Wisconsin. 96 calories per 12 ounces. Fewer calories and carbs than premium regular beer. You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with the fall guy. Let's do it later. Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes! Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Nope. Because I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. That story is crazy, and I've got a lot of follow-up questions. So how much did you pay for that flight, and were you thinking this might be like a one-way flight? Like, you feel like a loser. You feel like you've wasted four or five years. Magazine is calling out to you. What am I doing? I'm just going to the airport. This is calling me. I'm going. How much did that flight cost? Do you remember how much you had? It wasn't much because I didn't have much. I think I I think I had around 1200 bucks. I think that flight was like 500 bucks, give or take. You know, this was six, 17 years ago. But I think that's, that's about what it was. It wasn't, it wasn't too bad. I mean, not a lot. I don't think a lot of people were flying there. Right. No, but I'm asking you, you're basically doing this. This is what I'm going to do with my life. I'm going to try this. Something speaks to me here. And then you get there and what you're talking about is not fighting and it's not military. It's not violent. What you're talking about there is giving and helping giving and helping and spreading America's word while also trying to find your way. Yeah, absolutely. I, I don't know about spreading America's word because I'll be honest, at that time, I wasn't a super patriotic person. I don't even know if I would still consider myself like a super patriotic person. I believe in the potential of what we you know, have as a country. And I believe that, like I said, it's a responsibility for us. I think the idea of who we're supposed to be as a country and what America can be is a great idea, but we don't necessarily execute that and haven't necessarily executed that uh, in the right way for a long time. Um, and, uh, I, I, you know, I, I, I still choose this place over pretty much any, well, over any place. However, like I expect a lot out of us and that's a, that's another conversation, but well, no, you'd want, you'd want America to be better. This is the part though, that I was telling you where I felt like you were a little bit in disguise there because you were saying all the right things as a military man, as a proud American, as somebody who doesn't want headlines for being, Hey, this is the guy who told Colin Kaepernick to kneel because it's respectful. And you don't want to be, what do you want to be doing? Con you didn't expect that to be the controversy that it was. You don't want to welcome that stuff, but your intent in all of this is to find yourself and to fight for the utopian ideals that you believe America to be as America disappoints us a lot these days. Yeah. I mean, I think without realizing it at the time, what I wanted to be and what um, essentially in the special forces, what they train you to be is a warrior diplomat, you know, at least as close as you can to that, where, you know, you're willing to fight for those ideals and fight for people that don't have what we have and, you know, when we talk about fighting for freedom, it's more about fighting for those that don't have the type of freedoms that we get to enjoy for the most part uh, on a daily basis. So it's fighting, it's fighting for that. And, uh, but also like understanding and trying to be sensitive to not just sensitive to just trying to understand or at least relate in some way to these cultural differences and trying to get the fact that they just people were all different 
depending on how we were raised, our experiences shape what we believe, how we think, how we feel, what, what's right, morality, all that stuff. Um, it's just not literally and figuratively, it's not black and white all the time. It's not so cut and dry. It's, it's very, everything is nuanced and just trying to get that at the end of the day that we all want to feel, we all want to belong and we want to feel loved and we want to have a purpose and make a difference. And if we die, we want to know or feel like we, we, we lived a good life or we're dying for something worth dying for and all those things. I think we all share that, but other than that, really damn different. And that's a great thing, I think. I mean, I think that's one of the things that makes America a great place to me is that we are all different. And I wish we could, you don't always have to agree, but to just appreciate each other's differences more and more uh, as we (laughs) continue to evolve as a society. Which bothers you more daily as someone who has dedicated his life to certain principles that America feels as selfish as it does right now about not helping others or that so many Americans seem to take freedom for granted or perhaps define freedom differently than someone like you do who would fight to the death for it? I think the selfish part, because I also do believe that not everybody experiences the same type of, of freedom here. You know what I mean? Like I, I didn't grow up wealthy, but I had two parents that worked really hard to provide for us. And I am a white man. There is advantages with that. And uh, even as a young person, I mean, and I grew up in a pretty diverse neighborhood, but it's like, I guess the world can't help it. Nobody can help it. Like you're, we, we see color. Like that's just, it is what it is. Like we see it. Right. And our, immediate opinions are maybe not want to say shaped, but like you see something, you react to it. You know, you say, you see a certain type of person, the certain skin color, maybe dressed a certain way. And I'm talking about across the board. It could be a cop. You you see differences. You see differences. You make a, you, you make a judgment like you, or maybe not judgment, but like you have a reaction to that. You know, you think danger or you think safety or you think familiar or very unfamiliar or whatever it is. But just like anything in life, it's how you react to your response. I think that dictates who you are as a person. And we just collectively, myself included as a world, but mostly as a, as a country, because I do think we should, we need to lead the way in these type of things. We need to do a much, much, much better job of like not taking things at face value and, and really giving more, more the benefit of the doubt and just trying to continue to, <laughs> to understand one another talk to people, you know, that, that, that are different than you, that look different than you. When you go to Iraq and Afghanistan, man, I can't think of a place almost more different than what I'm familiar with from a religious standpoint, from a tradition standpoint, from what's valued as far as quality time, whatever that is, you know what I mean? It's very different. Uh, and I was fortunate to be sort of thrust in this environment where you have to work with, with people that are different than you, that they have to like, you have to get to know them you have to build trust because you're going to be out there working with them in life and death scenarios. But what I really got out of it was after that initial response, we, we all have like understanding people. That's not just who people are. They're not the uniform they wore. They're not their skin color. They're not their, you know, where they were born and they're not maybe even their current situation. You know, and I think about that. I think about people that are maybe incarcerated or whatever. That is a, define that person as like who they are. They're still a person that wants all those same things that you want. Even if you, they may never admit it, they probably, that's probably what they want. And you start to have these conversations, even with 
drastic language barriers, you're able to somehow break through that when you just spend time with people. And gosh, that's something that COVID's made just 50 times harder, you know, and hopefully coming out of that, it's like, maybe this is something we can all learn from that experience of like how important human connection is. But now it's not just human connection, like just being nice to one another and, and, and giving each other a chance to just explain why they feel the way that they feel, even if it's something that I feel is completely off base and I don't understand. And I think it's pure evil. Like I need to at least hear it out and try to understand where that's coming from. Maybe then um, I, I probably still won't agree with it, but maybe then I can figure out a way, like a more strategic way to open, get that person to open up and maybe hear why I feel the way that I feel. And maybe they can change. Maybe I can change a little bit too. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. I think the reason that I thought that you were closed up the first time I talked to you, if I remember this correctly, is because I asked you a question about Pat Tillman, and I can't possibly understand the amount of nuance that goes into this and how something like that could possibly happen where you find yourself dedicating yourself to a cause with utopian ideals, get killed by friendly fire, and the government uh, covers it up. And how, from afar, not having a warrior diplomat in me, I look at that and I'm like, oh my God, what a tragic waste of what that person believed in. What a tragic betrayal by our country to have him die that way. But you didn't look at it that way, and you've got more information here than I do. Yeah, well, I think... The government's always going to do that. <laughs> you know, unfortunately, to me, it doesn't really matter who's in office until, I mean, until we're the ones who got to make that change somehow. But there's just, there's just, you know, the rose colored glasses things and trying to paint a better picture than the reality is. But I think that's one blessing of, of this era, the social media age. And, and, you know, you can hear the voices of people that you would never hear before. I remember when the situation with Bo Bergdahl, you know, had happened and, and they were, we went out and 100%, it doesn't matter what the person did, like, we need to go rescue our people. You know what I mean? And we went and did that. But then there was sort of a, a hero's welcome at home. And there was a lot of people from that unit that served with the guy that was like, he abandoned us, you know, and, and he walked off his post and like, he put a lot of us at danger. Why is he, a, you know, why is he a hero? And it's important to hear those voices too. And, and uh, at the end of the day, like, it should be up to every individual to decide who this guy is, who this person is based on the facts, you know, and that goes, I think from everybody based on the information, I should say, maybe not the facts, but in the case of like, and like Pat, like for me, it was always about what he sacrificed, what he gave up the leader that he was to speak of leadership and the people that I've met, I never got to meet him, but the people that I've met that were close to him, that just, I've never heard a bad word spoken of the guy. And it is terrible that, this thing happened. You know, I feel so bad. I feel so much for the individuals who were responsible for it takes pulling those triggers, you know, when they thought they were doing the right thing and, you know, they ended up killing one of their own. And like, I can't imagine living with that. And then within all, you know, with, with all that going on and it goes up the chain of military command and eventually to wherever it goes and, and it comes out in the press that not the truth, not the true story, not the truth like that. 
that would hurt. That would just devastate me. And I, I'm sure, you know, that that family was incredibly, I know they were incredibly hurt, hurt by that, you know, and that, that really sucks because it's just, it's so unfair. It doesn't really buy you much to me. Maybe it buys you a week of people relaxing in the media, you know, and not, and, and, and whatever, instead of being up in arms about what actually happened, but it's never worth it. I mean, this is somebody's life and legacy and to sort of lie about it to think that that's never going to come out. <laughs> the truth isn't going to come out. is kind of crazy, but I guess those things have to happen so that we understand we, we can't do this. This doesn't work. You know, I mean, you can't just make up what, what some, somebody did here and what happened just to, to try to protect your own interests and, you know, the, the, the image of the military. Cause I mean, we've got plenty of idiots in the military. We're not all heroes and everybody thanks us for a service. And we, we, we're appreciative of that because we live in a, a grateful place for the most part where almost everybody supports veterans generally because of what they're willing to sacrifice, whether you agree with what's going on currently globally at, at that time or not. But anyway, I'm starting to, no, I do, I do appreciate it. I don't know that I could possibly ever get it because comparatively to you, I feel like a coward. Like you have gone and put your life on the line for some of these things that you believe in. And you were very politically correct when I asked you about the Tillman stuff, because I felt like we betrayed what was utopian spirit, somebody willing to give up everything for the same reasons that you gave it up, right? You were called to help something in, in his case, he saw uh, the nine 11 towers fall. And he's like, I got, I can't be playing football during this. I've got to go help that's something that this country should protect and preserve not just thank it's something that not all of us have in us so i'm curious when you're in combat how much doubting of the worth of what you're doing were you doing given that reporting has shown you've mentioned the truth that those were not the most noble of causes or don't seem like that your causes might have been different than the country's causes yeah, I mean, I think it's always it always can be pretty disappointing when you look at it from a macro level <laughs> because of special interests or because of, you know, like what happened in Vietnam. It was like, well, we've gone this far. We got to stick it out, you know, or we're going to look bad. And, and, you know, and that's never a good thing. But but I will say this in my experience, the people that I worked with from Iraq, from Afghanistan that I trained and fought alongside, like they really did want to move forward out of this place that they're in. I mean, we see what happened as soon as we leave, you know, with ISIS in Iraq, with the Taliban in, in Afghanistan. And to me, it just comes down to, to, to basic human rights for all people, you know, specifically women and children. And that's what breaks my heart because just the amount of oppression that exists in a place like that, if you don't have somebody trying to stand up for you and fight for you, and whether, you know, we were doing it for the right reasons at a macro level or in the right way, is absolutely up for debate. There's plenty of things I would have, you know, maybe done different even in our small situation. But from a special forces perspective, we want to be there. We we want to be able to try and help and uh, protect and and hopefully, um, you know, provide some type of hope towards freedom and all that. But it's just you're so hamstrung when there's there's a lack of resources and sometimes desire and and there's just so much corruption like i don't even know where to start i, I don't know the answer you know so that's that's the challenge but there's that's that's what i'm need. that's what i'm asking you though when you go in with such a purity of purpose to see it contaminated at every level on the macro by corruption i don't know 
that you you love people, people who would have been really grieving for the rest of their lives if they had lost you to this combat on behalf of causes that can be difficult to rationalize after right. after you read the reporting on why it is that we're right. doing some of these things that make you wonder, Nate, and I would not chat like this is the first time I've ever had to think about some of this stuff like this. But I have wondered, given that we're sending men like you into combat like this, like, are we the bad guys while believing in all of these good things that we're trying to believe in utopianly? Are we the bad guys? I think no, because to put it in a simple form, like to do nothing and to not even try those are all human beings too. You know what I mean? Their lives are worth exactly what ours are worth. And there's, there's just a lot of people there that are, are, are going to suffer a lot more without, <laughs> without us there to stop some of the, the horrible things that happen, or at least try to. And I, like, I gotta believe, uh, not, I gotta, I do believe that there is a, and it's a small possibility and it's a long shot, but I do believe that there's a possibility for places like that to come out of their current circumstance and situation. And, and, uh, and, and that's why I think to me, it's worth it. It'll always be worth it. Uh, and, and I can, all I can do is do what I can when I go over there. And if somebody, somebody sent me because they want me to, you know, because they have a, a different interest in mind and there's, there's something in it for them in that way. And, and I'm a sort of a reverse captain Jack Sparrow, and I'm trying to do something good for the people, you know what I mean? And, and at the end of the day, I guess it benefits whoever sent me to whatever, but like, I, I want to, to try and help those people. Once you meet them and you're around them, it's like, man, you become so connected to them and you're just like, I can't leave you behind. And, you know, and that's why it's so, so difficult to see how many of our interpreters that were promised something, you know, are, have just been left behind and, and, and we're still trying to get a lot of those people out. We've got, and a lot of uh, organizations have gotten a lot of those people out, but it was just, it's tough. There was no easy exit. Uh, I'll say that there's no like just easy exit. Everyone, you know, wants to blame one thing or it's just, it's not that simple. It's not that simple, but for me, for us in the special operations community, I know there's a lot of us that would still like to be there at least in an advising role with a presence and hope in a hope that you can just hang on for a little bit longer until somehow internally, things change and there's the right kind of coup that needs to happen. But I don't even know what that looks like either. So it's, it's tough because it feels like a, it feels like a lost cause. I just don't believe that it completely is, you know, but it does, it does feel that way. And that's, and that's frustrating because of the people that are affected. Do you remember when it felt that way the most? Is it in seeing the video after Afghanistan crumbles that quickly? Do you, are, are you even allowed as a soldier and a believer in this country's ideals who just explained so eloquently why it is you do what you do. Are you allowed to look back on it and be like, well, what are we doing for then? Like, I understand maybe you carry the gratitude. Well, no, I was able to help in all of these instances while I was there, but to see it fall that quickly afterward when it was something that you were physically fighting for, even that had to surprise you the speed with which that happened. No, it does. And you, and you do think all of those things, you know, you, you, you wonder, did I waste my time? Did, did we all waste our time and, you know, lives, lives that were lost from not just American lives, you know, lives generally, um, but lives are being lost right now over there too. And maybe at a, <laughs> maybe at a greater rate. I mean, seeing that stuff, when you see women passing their babies over barbed wire, you know, <laughs> it makes you want to stay. <laughs> it makes you want to keep fighting and keep trying. It makes you want to go back and uh, I don't know what you would do, but it just, it makes you feel that way. And it's not just because, 
for me, I don't, I really don't think it's just because I spent that time there. It's because I got to know those people there. And, uh, and that's what hurts the most in this situation. But I also, I think of it to put it in another, to put it in something else that I understand, which is sports. I didn't play football growing up, always regretted it. Right. It was like my favorite sport and I never did it. And then when I finally went to go, got to go to college, I was 29 years old and I went from active duty in the army to net the national guard. And, and I walked onto the football team at Texas and I made the team and I wasn't a great athlete. I was a good athlete and I was in good shape and I was giving as much or more effort than anybody else out there, but I was never going to start at safety. You know, it just wasn't going to happen. So I started long snapping just to find a way on the field. And I, and I, and I made it, I got the starting job and, and um, I'm working up the ranks with this dream of maybe playing in the NFL. And I get an opportunity with the Seahawks and, you know, I I go through OTAs and training camp and, you know, play one game in the preseason. And then all of a sudden I'm cut and it's like over, you know what I mean? And it's like, I didn't even get to play. Like I never made it. I never got, got there. But when I sit back and think about it, I mean, in that moment, it just crumbled. You know what I mean? It was done. And I sit back and think about it because of what I was trying to do and the effort that I put in and how it helped me grow as a person and hopefully how it helped some of those people grow as people over there and some of our young men and women that went and, you know, enlisted and did what they did, helping them grow. Like, I don't see any of that from a football aspect as, as a waste. And I don't, I don't see that from a, on a personal level as a, as a waste. I see it as a tragedy and something that's very sad. I mean, tragedies happen all the time. They happen every day, you know, um, in macro and micro levels and they're never fun to deal with, but I, I, I don't see it in that way because I think because of, because of what I just explained, like, because of what that, that connection that I had to my experience over there and, and what I put into it, what we all put into it. I need you to know, and I need the audience to know that since having the conversation with my producer, Mike Ryan, about what he needs to do to get in the kind of shape that makes you like smoldering Nate Boyer, that he has been eating Doritos the entire time that we've been talking and Halloween candy. Uh, he seems to have no interest in got this, what... Uh, got the snack pack from Japan. I just had um, something that was covered in curry, but it was you, really you, good. Your fingers are covered in some yeah, sort of uh, that, cool ranch, or that, is that just uh, Doritos? Yes, hot Doritos. So, I'm really proud of you, Mike. <laughs> I've been kind of half listening while I've been munching on these things. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you for your, your, your service. Thank you really. for your service, yeah. Mike Ryan. <laughs> Uh, Nate, thank you for being with us. We appreciate it, sir. Yeah, thank you, brother. I appreciate it. My team is one win away. And I'll tell you exactly what I'm going to do to celebrate once they get past this series. I'm going to go to my fridge and I'm going to get myself an ice cold can of Miller Lite. A lot's changed over the years, but one thing that hasn't, the great taste of Miller Lite. Another thing that hasn't changed is that it's less filling. So what is the best thing about the original light beer? Miller Lite sparked this debate in 1975 and it still hasn't been settled. You see, Miller Lite keeps it simple. Undebatable quality, great taste, and only 96 calories. It's the beer that strips away everything that you don't need and holds on to what matters most. A light beer that tastes like beer, less filling, and only 96 calories. The original light beer since 1975. You don't have to choose what's best. Miller Lite has great taste and is less filling. Tastes like Miller Time. To get Miller Lite delivered right at your door, visit MillerLite.com Beach, B-E-A-C-H. Or you can get it pretty much anywhere that sells beer. Celebrate responsibly. Miller Brewing Company, Milwaukee, Wisconsin. 96 calories per 12 ounces. Fewer calories and carbs than premium regular beer.